Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Samuel Foster, and joining me for our final episode is my fellow host and co-organizer for the Bassi Study Group for Minority History, Olena Palko. This series was part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and was organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. Thank you once again to all our guests and guest interviewers who have helped to make this podcast such a success, as well as the IHR for originally giving us this fantastic opportunity. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information about this series, as well as news and updates regarding the study group's future projects, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. For our final episode, we talked to Ronald Grigor Suni on the nature of contemporary minority and nationalist studies and the role his own work has played in its development, particularly in the case of Armenia and the post-Soviet space. Ronald is the William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History and Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, an Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago, as well as the author of multiple publications focusing on the history of the Southern Caucasus under Ottoman, Imperial, Russian and Soviet rule. He has also served in numerous honorary and organizing roles, including chairman of the Society for Armenian Studies and president of the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies. Ronald, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this particular aspect of history? First, let me thank you for inviting me. This sounds like a wonderful series, and I'm really happy to be part of it. So I was born in Philadelphia uh, many, many years ago. I'm older than you think. And um, I was born into an Armenian family. My father was from the what we call the other side. He came from uh, Tbilisi, from Tiflis. Uh, they came here in the early 20s. My mother was born in Philadelphia of Armenian parents. So there was always that Armenian side to things, even though they were convinced we should be good Americans and never bothered to teach us Armenian. We spoke in English, they spoke to each other in Armenian when they didn't want us to understand. So I grew up and became interested in history, largely Russian history because of tales that my father would tell about the revolution which he lived through as a boy, the coming of the Bolsheviks to Menshevik Georgia in 1921 and how they fled to the United States. So at the dinner table, my my interest in that part of the world was peaked. And indeed, uh, from that family, I developed a kind of love for not only the Caucasus, but for Russia and even the Soviet Union itself. My father's father had been a, uh, a Dashnag, an Armenian nationalist. And after the revolution, when they fled, they had to flee because the Bolsheviks, the communists came to Tbilisi. But in America, now that Armenia was Soviet, and he was still a patriot, he became a communist, a member 
of the Armenian uh, cell, so to speak, in Philadelphia of the Communist Party. So there we were, uh, my family, my father growing up in Philadelphia, the son of an Armenian composer who was himself a left-wing activist. You can imagine how prosperous we were in the United States with, those, with that pedigree. In any case, from those dinner table conversations, I developed an interest, went to Swarthmore College, studied Russian history, went on to Columbia, and began to write about the Caucasus. My first book was on the uh, city of Baku, the, now the capital of Azerbaijan, uh, the Baku Commune, which was about how the revolution moved from a class struggle in 1917 to an ethno-nationalist struggle in 1918. My mother warned me, Ronald, don't ever get mixed up with the Armenians, but being Armenian, even in America, it's almost inevitable. And eventually I wrote books about Armenia. I had chair in Armenian studies. I wrote a big book uh, to mark the 100th anniversary of the genocide. Uh, they can live in the desert, but nowhere else. A history of the Armenian genocide. So the Caucasus has been my focus right up to my latest book, Stalin, Passage to Revolution, which is the biography of the first half of Stalin's life, largely in the Caucasus. As one of the first scholars to challenge the view of the Soviet Union as a so-called a prison of nation, you have suggested that it should be viewed as an empire that fostered national identities, with imperialism and nationhood coexisting and mutually reinforcing one another. This has subsequently shifted to an examination of Moscow's attempt at nation building in the 1920s. In a way, however, it can also be argued that such an approach led to a normalization of the Soviet period, with scholars accentuating the Soviet Union's more positive aspects while downplaying the obvious crimes and regime, uh, the regime committed against its people, even after Stalin's death. We are recording this conversation amidst the war in Ukraine with Western institutions now having to contend with their own normalization of the Putin's regime during the 2000s and the early 2010s. Do you think the field of Soviet and Russian studies must also accept some degree of responsibility? When I started teaching Russian history and writing Russian history, it was the years of the Cold War. And it was a time when the Soviet Union badly understood in the West was basically demonized. There was nothing positive about the war. In fact, I grew up uh, as a little boy in a period when Stalin was still ruling the Soviet Union. But I was always interested in the Soviets. And I would say that once I became uh, a scholar, let's say as a graduate student and then a young professor in the 1960s and 70s, uh, those of us who were sort of on the left, uh, not communists, but people who were interested in uh, normalizing the Soviet Union, seeing what it achieved without apologizing for the crimes of Stalin or the repression of the police regime that, was, that remained after Stalin's death. And that was a very difficult position because you were really required during the Cold War to become one of those who didn't just study and explain the Soviet Union, but used scholarship to indict it. In other words, your scholarship was supposed to be anti-communist. Well, I'm an anti-anti-communist. I'm against uh, this kind of anti-communist ideology, which I think distorted the full complex understanding of the Soviet Union. So it's a delicate place to walk 
between apologetics, trying to explain what was going on, uh, but not demonizing at the same time. After all, the crimes of Stalin are real, the whole of the more, hundreds of thousands, millions of people died, the great purges and so forth. On the other hand, the Soviet Union essentially won the Second World War in Europe, uh, destroyed and ended the rise of fascism, liberated the death camps in Poland, including Auschwitz, thereby ending the Holocaust. And in some ways, the Soviet victory, as I've sometimes put it, saved the world for capitalism and liberal democracy. Ironically, the Soviets who won the war did worse after the war, and many of the perpetrators of the war, like Italy, Germany, and uh, Japan, became allies of the West and did much better. So that was part of the, 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 the impetus of many people on the left, uh, or liberals even, scholars, in the, in the Cold War years. Um, and then when, when you move to the end of the Soviet Union, which was a very uh, difficult time for people on the left, I think, because there was much hope that somehow Gorbachev and the reform uh, would lead to some kind of maybe social democratic regime, not the destruction of the whole project of the Soviet period. Uh, that was very hard for people on the left to deal with because what it did was not only end state socialism or communism or whatever you want to call the Soviet project, but it actually ended much of the efforts of the left to build alternatives to liberal democracy and capitalism. So the left was, was dismissed. Uh, it retreated into the academy perhaps a little bit, but it was no longer really an effective political force. Um, and again, we tried to understand what was going on. I would say someone like I was very critical of uh, the Yeltsin period, uh, the, the way Yeltsin and what I would call liberal Bolsheviks in some sense that ended all of the uh, things about the Soviet Union uh, through shock therapy uh, and, and created the monster we have today uh, that is uh, oligarchic crony capitalism, a dictatorial regime. Let's remember who appointed Putin. It was uh, the great Democrat, that's irony, by the way, uh, of Boris uh, Yeltsin. Um, and then you have to remember that you have to differentiate the Putin period as well. When Putin came in, whatever he eventually became, uh, it's very hard to predict, and probably it's what would be wrong to say he was that person in the year 2000. He made a whole decade almost of gestures toward trying to work with the West uh, and uh, to liberalize the country, uh, supporting the American effort uh, in Afghanistan after 9-11, you know, all of those kinds of things. At the same time, as he organized the country, fought crime, he created an authoritarian dictatorship with him at the head. So we got what we got, uh, but it's not surprising that in the last year, in 2020 and 2021, many people who studied the Soviet Union or many of the actors uh, politically, including, by the way, President Zelensky, uh, could not have predicted and did not predict, despite American intelligence, that Putin would actually on February 24th, 2021, 2022, launch this war. Uh, it, it was in some ways out of character with a president, with a politician who was known for pragmatism, realpolitik, and usually caution, with a few moments of, I'd say, panic 
as in 2014 when he quickly annexed uh, Crimea. Uh, but in general, uh, those aspects of Putin now are off the, off the charts. They're not considered. And we have a very dominant vision, both of Russia and of Ukraine, that in some ways has effaced or erased what we knew about Ukraine. Remember, it was a divided, corrupt, failed state, um, uh, which was shifting presidents between East and West, and Putin, a, a state uh, and a president who always spoke about the West as partners and tried to make various deals with them. We've forgotten all of that, and we now have very uh, uh, concretized images, black and white, of the two countries, which is perfectly understandable since Putin did launch this war without any real provocation, without any real justification, and he's carried out a war of enormous and stunning brutality, war crimes, uh, mass killings, etc., that uh, belie those images we had earlier of him, let's say up in the first decade or 12 years of his uh, rule. So is it a matter of responsibility? I, I think that's the wrong word to use. What scholars should do, and we do do uh, as honestly as we can, is try to understand things uh, as good historicists, as good historicists, that is, in their historical moment, in time, in space, given the realities of the time. And so it's not accidental that people would have noted that all through those early years of Yeltsin and Putin, the West was moving very steadily to move uh, the Western alliance and NATO uh, into Eastern Europe and even into the former Soviet Union, creating a situation that people predicted. I mean, George Kennan predicted, uh, uh, Paul Nitze predicted, many hawks and foreign policy people predicted would lead ultimately to a crisis. So it seems to me, let's not forget the past as we live in a very difficult and uh, fraught uh, and emotionally uh, heightened present. Together with Valerie Kivelson, you have been working on a new textbook entitled Russia's Empires. This textbook aims to overcome what's seen as a dependency on Russian-centered historical narratives and bring the peripheral histories to the fore. What were your key objectives when working on this project? And what do you think are the main challenges facing the discipline today? And what should an ideal textbook ultimately look like? Let me start by saying we don't consider it a textbook. It can be used as a textbook. We consider it a survey history. And Val and I had taught several classes together. We're very close friends. And we don't agree on everything. We often struggle to get things right because we have different views. But we were very interested in saying, let, what if we took the lens of empire uh, rather than that of a nation state, which is so powerful in the historical profession, and looked at Russian history from the primeval ooze all the way up to Putin through this lens? When was Russia an empire? What kind of state was it? Is Russia today, the Federation, an empire? How impulsive have been, how determinative have been uh, ideas of the imperial, uh, the, of imperialism, of expansion been in Russian history? So we wrote the earlier part, Val uh, is an expert in early modern uh, Russia, 
And we concluded, for instance, that Kiev and Rus was not even a state. There was a kind of mafia groups of people knocking each other's heads, burning Kiev after taking the capital, etc. So we started with that. And then we watched how Russia became an empire in Moscow under Ivan III, Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, of course, uh, and, and right through Peter the Great and into the Tsarist period. Uh, I, we also made the argument, which is, I think, a relatively novel argument, but one that's been largely uh, more and more accepted, that the Soviet Union itself, by our definition, also was an, uh, uh, an empire, uh, an empire in which Un, uh, uh, there's inequality and distinctions between those who rule and those who rule. And it's the superiority of those who rule, in this case, the communist nomenclatura, rather than the czarist uh, aristocracy, uh, that gives it the right to rule. That is, it, it's the carrier of civilization. And, and we try to use that, that model of empire uh, to explain Soviet behavior. We even developed a notion of something which I call the dilemma of empire. What if the empire in its civilizing mission actually succeeds? What if the empire, let's say the British in India, actually creates a class of people, Muhammad Gandhi, Muhammad, Muhammad Gandhi, um, Nehru, etc., that no longer needs the empire? What if the Communist Party of Russia which inherited, came to power in a country in which 80% were peasants, turned that country into a country by modernizing, industrializing, collectivizing, et cetera, a country into 80% urban, working, middle-class people, highly educated, highly literate. Why do those people in Gorbachev's Russia need the empire anymore? Why do they need the Communist Party? And so they didn't, they went off created their own states and the Soviet Union uh, disappeared. In other words, you can see the Soviet experiment as a failure, but you can also see it as a success. It did too well in modernizing itself. Let's now turn to what you've highlighted as your key area of interest, namely the Southern Caucasus. And it's here it's clear that both Armenia and modern Armenia, Armenian identity have exerted a significant influence over much of your work. What is it do you think that distinguishes this land and its peoples historically, both as a constituent part of this region's various imperial polities, as well as a, an independent nation state? Armenians, like myself, always love to talk about Armenia. Now, I'm a rather strange Armenian because I am not a nationalist. I'm an internationalist or I'm an anti-nationalist. And so this work that I've done on Armenia, a book called Looking Toward Ararat Armenia, the making of the, uh, the uh, uh, well, in some sense, the making of the Georgian nation was about Georgia, but certainly uh, they can live in the desert, but nowhere else, uh, history of the Armenian genocide. These works go against the grain of the very powerful nationalist uh, framing that most Armenian historians, except a new and rising generation, I must say, many of whom we've trained at the University of Michigan, uh, long uh, uh, practice. So Armenian history in Armenia is very nationalistic. 
Mine is against the grain. I adopted the constructivist view that nations are modern, that they are not facts of nature, but they are in fact human creations made by statesmen and poets and uh, scholars and military leaders. Uh, so that view of, of Armenia as an imagined community was very alien to Armenians when I published this work in the 1990s and 2000s, because Armenia was at that time a small, newly independent state besieged by neighboring states, by Azerbaijan, it was at war with Azerbaijan, and Turkey closed its border uh, and was hostile uh, right up to the war of, uh, right up to the present, but uh, aiding Azerbaijan in the war of the fall of 2020 uh, against uh, that small state. So my work has not been appreciated very much, and I've been called in Armenian Davajan in Armenia, that is the word for traitor, because of this kind of constructivist, modernist, uh, anti-nationalist point of view that I've developed. But to answer your question, Sam, about what is a modern Armenian identity, uh, rather than a kind of primordial, essentialized Armenianness that existed through all time, which I think is a fiction, I emphasize that there has been something you might call the Armenian tradition. That is people, scholars at first, clerics, later some early historians, uh, uh, politicians, political parties like the Dashnak Sutyun, and most importantly, uh, Soviet Armenia itself, created over time an idea of what Armenians were. And those ideas are very powerful. And most Armenians uh, will just simply accept them as mother's milk, as given. Armenia is an ancient people. We uh, fought for freedom through the millennia. We're the first Christian nation. Um, we have great monuments in the past. We, and we have, no matter how hard we have been hit, we have survived. And powerfully within that uh, idea of Armenian identity is of course the suffering, the near extermination that took place in 1915-1916 of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, what we call the Armenian Genocide. And a, a spectacular event, the first really modern genocide uh, near uh, or in Europe uh, that we have, uh, that in fact is denied by the Turkish government and by many Turkish pseudo-scholars, but which is now recognized largely by the world community and certainly by the scholarly community. So the genocide uh, is very central. The great Czech writer, uh, Milan Kundera, said something which is often quoted, a small nation can disappear and knows it. And Armenians, like Jews, uh, like Czechs, like many nations, uh, understand that it has to completely and, and, and constantly revive this sense of self, learning the language, being loyal to the state, et cetera. And it's very difficult for Armenians because we are a divided nation. We have a homeland, Hayastan or Armenia, the little state that exists in the South Caucasus, but half or more of Armenians in the world live in the diaspora, the Spirta Hayuchun, uh, and uh, they have to create their own identities and their own complex relationships with that Haidani, with that homeland. So identity is a constant making and remaking. 
the formation of nations is never a finished product. It is always a work in progress. And that's certainly true for Armenians. As you've just outlined, your approach can be distinguished as going against this contemporary nationalist grain, while also broadly following in the Marxist tradition. Consequently, consequently as you've also pointed out, um, you've been no stranger to controversy, um, notably from, the, from a minority's perspective. Um, one of the most notable examples of this was featured in the, um, came of the publication of your 1993 study of modern Armenian history, looking towards Ararat, which brought accusations of historical distortion or even outright falsification, uh, notably in the case of Armenia's national capital of Yerevan and its historic Muslim population. Um, Sticking with Armenia as, as our example then, what kind of challenge do you think contemporary socio-political developments still represent for historians wishing to advance a new understanding or perspective on the past? Are these sorts of extraneous factors as relevant today as they were during the late and immediate post-Cold War era, for example? I think that in my lifetime, the study of history has never been more important than it is today. We are living in an age of uh, invented facts, of doubts about truth, uh, all kinds of falsifications in social media, in the press, and among so-called historians as well. So his history, however, remains absolutely central to understanding where we've come from, how we got where we are and where we are, and what possible alternatives to the future exist. What other database is there except historical experience? Now, therefore, history is so important to understanding reality that governments and pseudo-scholars actively try to distort it or repress it. And historians, must understand that their task is precisely to subvert those comfortable narratives which nationalists and others create to justify the present day distribution of power, privilege, and property. So I'm a Marxist, and in a sense, I live in America, which is probably the most anti-Marxist state, anti-social state in the world. Quite reactionary, actually, particularly at the present moment. And in such a state, what, what privilege does Marxism give you? Marxism puts you outside the existing discursive frames, the most powerful liberal frames. It allows you, I think, to look critically at the hegemonic views, largely liberal in America, but also conservative, uh, that dominate the historical profession, that accept capitalism as the end of history, as a natural form rather than historical project, uh, that accept the nation uh, as if it's inevitable, the end of political uh, imagination. And so Marxism gives you that critical approach. And good history is always critical. It's always questioning. And I mean, you can read Marx in many different ways, teleologically, uh, as an economic determinist. I read him as a radical historicist, as someone who looked at the past and at the present and try to understand in all its complexities how we constructed the world we have constructed, right? Where capitalism came from, 
And so that gives me that kind of, I think, powerful outside vision, which many of my colleagues also share, though they would be uh, reluctant to call themselves Marxists. And of course, I would never uh, advise any untenured faculty member to do what I absurdly did when I was young and once refused tenure briefly, uh, saying proudly that I was a Marxist. <laughs> a dangerous path. In this job market, you have to think more strategically. Beyond the still rather closed shop of academia, your 2015 exploration of the Armenian genocide, um, they can live in the desert but nowhere else, is probably your best known work to date, um, having received extensive praise among Western scholars and pundits for seeking to cut through many of these dominant meta-narratives and much of the nationalist mythologizing. And yet in Turkey and somewhat conversely Armenia, the book has languished in relative um, obscurity. While framing these subjects for Western audiences is certainly important, do you not think it also carries a risk of undermining efforts at promoting these new or fresh historical perspectives within the areas of the world where they, that are actually being studied, especially as, as an alternative to these official narratives? An excellent question. I would say, uh, I told you I'm not a nationalist, but I'm a patriot. I'm an American patriot and I'm an Armenian patriot. And what does that mean? That means I believe that I support these nations and these states when they are virtuous. And I criticize them and oppose them when they are not virtuous. And I, I, what a historian has to do as part of his or her profession uh, is precisely provide true histories of the past, multivalent histories, as objective and neutral as possible, that question these dominant comforting narratives that support the present distribution of privileged property uh, and power. And so what I think I'm providing to Turkey and Armenia, and by the way, the book was translated, it's only been translated into two languages, Hungarian, and Turkish. It was translated into Turkish, not Armenian, not Russian, by an Armenian, a wonderful Armenian press and a group of Armenian intellectuals in Istanbul. So it's available uh, to a Turkish speaking audience and it's, it has been influential among scholars there. Uh, but of course it can't be widely read in public or taught in schools or anything like that. So it seems to me writing as honestly you can and American historians are doing this, questioning slavery, uh, questioning the oppression uh, of, of gay people and, and, and women, et cetera, uh, looking back at the found, found, founders of the Republic to find out the flaws and pathologies that they lived with. All of those things are important. Uh, there's a whole group of revisionist scholars in Israel who questioned the founding of the state, the treatment of Palestinians. Seems to me that's the best thing we can do. And then we're being truly patriotic, trying to make our country as virtuous as possible. Thank you. Um, turning back perhaps to a more uh, general question again. Um, in one of your key works, The Revenge of the Past, Nationalism, Revolution and the Collapse of the Soviet Union, published in 1993, 
You claim that the union's disintegration was not caused by nationalism. How did Soviet state policy towards the non-Russian peoples and more broadly the principle of nationality developed by the Soviet theorists come to shape the region after 1991? Is the inter-ethnic violence, which we witness today in different parts of the former Soviet Union, directly linked to the interwar Soviet experiment? At the same time, how much can Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine be considered revenge for the loss of the Soviet Union, or perhaps can be explained by the uh, persistent legacies of Russia's previous empires? Well, it's Olena. Olena. You understood the meaning of the book. It's always misunderstood. So it, it, sometimes people think I wrote that, oh, look, nationalism destroyed the Soviet Union. No, I don't argue that. And this Revenge of the Past book has been very appreciated by political scientists. I was a political scientist at Chicago at the moment that it was written, uh, but it's a historical work, but less by historians. Because the argument of the book, as you said, is that the Soviet Union itself was the crucible of nations. It took peoples or even former states, people who had states, and made them into something like modern nation states, right? And, you know, I don't want to sound like Putin, but in many ways, Ukraine was made by the Soviet Union. That is, Lenin put in Donbas, Stalin put in Lviv in Western uh, uh, Ukraine. Khrushchev gave them Crimea, etc. But whereas Putin sees that as an argument for the artificiality of Ukraine, I would argue that is part of how a nation and a state is made. So the Soviet nationality policy, particularly under Lenin, less so under Stalin, who brought a greater Russian flavor to Soviet identity, but never got rid of the nativization or indigenization Karimizatsia policy, but nevertheless, the Soviet Union did two things vis-a-vis uh, -vis the non-Russian peoples. I don't call them minorities because most of these peoples are majorities in their own homelands. But these, these non-Russian peoples, they created states first. They created boundaries. So we can talk about what Ukraine is or where Armenia is today. It's not historic Armenia. Most of that was lost to the Turkish nationalists in the genocide and afterwards. But the, the Armenia that exists today was a Soviet project, Georgia, etc. All of the stands of Central uh, Asia were new states that never had existed before. They were formed during the Soviet period. But besides forming states, the Soviets, particularly under Lenin, created nations within those states. That is populations, groups of people who believed that by virtue of their shared culture, they had the right to rule themselves. Self-determination, right? Sama Apodidenia. And to actually have a territory of their own. So dozens of peoples, but most particularly the 15 union republics, developed both as nations and states. And in 1991, and this was the argument of the book, when the Soviet Union committed suicide, when Gorbachev refused to use his own power to hold the whole operation together, those 15 republics fled for their own survival 
and live because they had been formed as effective nation states. Now, many of them, Ukraine among them, needed to develop a more coherent and conscious unified nation within it. Some did better than others. Georgia didn't do so well. Parts of Georgia fled, it became independent, uh, called in the Russians, and the Russians are still there today in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. In Ukraine, you had a divided nation between Eastern and West. You had people who were more pro-Russian or spoke Russian, Ukrainian, more nationalistic in a Ukrainian ethno-national way. And, but during the post-Soviet period, there was a nationalizing tendency in most of these republics to make them more coherent, more conscious, et cetera. Sometimes that worked out pretty well, painlessly, not so painlessly, let's say in the Baltic countries, where they did have to sort of tame the Russians or repress Russians to a degree and get them to become you know, Estonian speakers, Latvian speakers, et cetera. In other places, it led to violence, as in Armenia and Azerbaijan, in Georgia, in Tajikistan, uh, in Kazakhstan and elsewhere. Ukraine is the most interesting case because it became over time, uh, even despite the divisions, the corruption, the oligarch rule, et cetera, it did become more and more Ukrainian. And when, whatever Putin does in his kind of fantastically falsified and, and falsified histories, Ukraine was a nation, right? It, it had already had nationalists before. It had a, a culture that was developing over centuries. And under the Soviets, it became a coherent, conscious, educated, literary, literate nation, right? With its own state, ultimately. And the war itself is proving how coherent and how Ukrainian that nation now. It's more na national, more Ukrainian than it was any time before, let's say, 2014. The annexation of Crimea, the war in the Donbass, and now this horrific invasion has made Ukraine even more Ukrainian. Now, some of that is anti-Russian Ukrainian, that is very powerfully for perfectly good reason, and Ukraine may become much more a uh, conservative ethno-nationalist state when this war is over. But that's a consequence of what Putin did. In other words, Putin, in a funny way, is the greater, greatest maker of the, of the Ukrainian nation since Lenin and Stalin. Funny place to be. I hope that's not offensive to any Ukrainians. But Ukrainian is, Ukraine is as genuine, as authentic a nation as any other nation, which, as I try to argue in most of my work, are products of human construction and of the efforts of, of intellectuals, statesmen, and states themselves to create even, even uh, such things. You ask an interesting question. How did the Soviet policy toward Western people, et cetera, uh, come to shape the region and what effects does it have today? First of all, late Soviet policy actually was creating nationalism within many of these republics. Uh, and that nationalism and that view of the nation has now survived almost a primordial idea that we've always been here, we're ancient people, has come at lasted after the Soviet period as well. So most of the republics have been nationalizing and nationalistic, and this is very fiercely so in the Caucasus, in Georgia, Azerbaijan, uh, and Armenia. 
but it's also true in the Baltic countries uh, and, and in Central Asia and elsewhere. And so it's the Soviet experience, that 70 plus years of building nations within the Soviet Union, which has created precisely the kind of nation states we have today and many of the problems. You could see the, the war in Ukraine in many different ways. One way I would suggest we should see it is that it is still the ongoing unraveling of the Soviet Union as a pseudo federal empire. It's still happening. In Karabakh, they're still trying to get the borders right. They're still fighting it over. In Georgia, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, in Transnistria, and brutally at the moment in Ukraine, right? And in some ways, this is one of the things that Putin is starting to argue. I mean, he had grandiose ideas of taking all of Ukraine and getting rid of the, the Kievan government, etc. I think he's now retreated. We hope he's retreated and, and, and realized as a result of the resistance, the heroic resistance of the Ukrainians, that that's impossible. Maybe he'll settle for something less, maybe Donbass, maybe uh, the coast uh, to, to Crimea, something like that. But it seems to me uh, that there are many causes of this, of this war in Ukraine. And in some ways, yes, Soviet nationality policy, the building of, of those nation states uh, is the background to this. But then so is the 30 year history since the end of the Soviet Union and the West's expansion into Eastern Europe. And it's, it's, it's what it was perceived to be threats, not just by Putin, but by the Yeltsin government, by most of the, Soviet, the Russian elite, by many ordinary Russians as well. What Putin did is unforgivable, unjustifiable, unprovoked, but there are many complex reasons. You don't have to resort to fanciful uh, uh, speculations that Putin is a fascist or Putin is some kind of crazy imperialist or Putin is some kind of nutty Eurasianist to understand that you can still be quite realistic, but also in your understanding of your own identity and your own, as a great power, this is Putin, and your own interests, uh, trying to take Ukraine into the Western sphere as part of NATO uh, is extraordinarily threatening to people in the Kremlin, and they would ultimately react. Uh, uh, in other words, you could say in a way, Ukraine may not be in NATO, but to Moscow, NATO is already in Ukraine and they were going to do something about it. And finally, where can our listeners go to learn more about these topics? Well, they can read all my books. That would be very good. I don't mind selling books. I don't get much money from it, but uh, I, I was very happy to hear the reference to uh, Revenge of the Past. Uh, that book was given as a series of lectures at uh, Stanford University in 1990, the year before the Soviet Union collapsed. And then they asked me to publish it as a, a, a book. Uh, and I, of course, once the book was coming out, came out, I think, in 1993, there was no Soviet Union. So the story became somewhat different. Uh, but that book tries to lay out in very clear terms, the constructivist theory of the nation, making of nations, and then the actual experience of state-made nations and nation states within the Soviet Union. 
But there are many good books out there now on Soviet nationality policy. Uh, and I'll just name a few. I think you can read any of the work of Yuri Spilskin, particularly the, the Jewish Century, which is a very novel work, uh, or his uh, work on uh, the Arctic. You can look at Terry Martin's book, Affirmative Action Empire. You can look at Francine Hirsch's book, Empire of Nations. I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many studies of different republics like Adrian Edgar's book on uh, Turkmenistan. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff out there. There was no field really, highly developed field when I started in Soviet nationality studies. Oh, there were some nostalgic emigres, uh, uh, very much, I would say, narcissistic nationalists of some kind who wrote. Uh, it was very polemical. It was much in the sort of captive nations tradition, uh, but they were doing good work and they were founders of the field. And later, uh, this, this, this book, I think Revenge of the Past tried to shift the paradigm from the idea that Russia was simply russifying and repressing nations to in a funny way, it was actually developing them whether they intended to or not within their own body. So there's a great literature here and I hope people will go out and read it. Ron Sonny, thank you very, very much. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Take care.